What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. My family thinks I'm crazy. A podcast where I, your host, try to give you some tips on how you can explain all this weird, wild, crazy conspiracy stuff to the people you love most. Because that's what I've been trying to do for the past 10 years with no success. I've been telling everybody that our government is shady. But every time I do, my family thinks I'm crazy. The hollow earth, UFOs, aliens, and painting. Pour it in the water, they spray our skies daily. When I talk about these things, they think I'm crazy. There's no escaping anymore, the evil that we're facing. Illuminati might control the sacrificing babies. The end of days, but anyways, my family thinks I'm crazy. What, they don't want to listen to you? No, they don't want to listen. They don't want to hear it. They're just like, oh, here we go, Mark. <laughs> Off again with your... Mark being Mark again. Yeah. Yeah, so, you know, that's the thing about podcasts is when you're on the air, it's like therapy, you know, if I can't talk to my family about this stuff, I'll talk to you, Matt, and all our listeners. Yeah, so who are we talking about today, Matt? the year that broke reality. Internet, cell phones, personal computers, and the glossy, pixelated birth of the not-so-new-age 2.0. Here we are 40 years later, and my how we've fallen. And with us to address this time-bending bygone era is the Secret Sons, Chris Knowles, a synchromystic decipherer of the esoteric and occulted threads woven through pop culture, a true interlocutor of intrigue and enigma. And he joins me, Mystic Mark, here on the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast to discuss all this and so much more. Lucifer's technology, the Esalen Institute, the Council of Nine, and the Montauk Project are all discussed. And as a bonus, Chris and I recorded an entirely separate two-hour conversation all about his new book, The Spandex Files, that is available now only on the Patreon. If you sign up on the Patreon now, you get an ad-free version of of the show you get the entire conversation plus extended outros so support the show today on patreon substack or rockfin to get the full show otherwise thank you for tuning in and enjoy this conversation with chris knowles if you were going to actually start to do major damage to reality as we know it maybe you'd go after the very building blocks of it mm. i mean i again i can't prove that you know, I mean, this is all just speculation on my part. But I can't discount it. You know, certainly now, like, especially after doing, like, the Lucifer's Technology series, and just seeing how all this ritualism and occultism and ufology and all this stuff just, like, is almost embedded into computer technology and, and these major developments, these high-tech developments. I can't, you know, I don't... Is it all disinfo? Is it all just misdirection? I don't know. All right. Ladies and gentlemen, here we are back again on the My Family Thinks Some Crazy podcast. And with us 
for the fifth time is the legendary Chris Knowles of the Secret Sun Institute, the Secret Sun blog. He's the author of Our Gods Wear Spandex, The Secret History of Rock and Roll, and his latest book, among others, The Spandex Files, which is behind me somewhere. But we did a whole two-hour episode, which is available on the Patreon, as well as a episode back in February about The Spandex Files. And lucky for me, Chris is a busy boy. He's writing a ton of stuff, and one of your blogs really grabbed my attention. So I want to get into that with you today. But before we do that, Chris... How you feeling? How you doing? And are you ready for Thanksgiving 2023? I'm not really ready for Thanksgiving, but, you know, what are you going to do? Right. It's coming whether I'm ready or not. <laughs> I hear you. So. Well, in your, in your blog post, and I'm going to link this in the description, you write, 1983 hovers like a wraith over all of my work, and I've never been quite sure why. So I'm excited to get into the how and how so of that question, and maybe we can get a little closer to that answer that's been eluding you, but to help paint the picture for us, why is 1983 looming in the background of your work? And obviously that was a year that means a lot to you, I imagine, so tell us about it. It's not just me, it's everybody. Right. It's all of us. I mean, it's the year that broke reality. It's the year when things went from being things with size and weight and shape and dimension to being fake. Okay. And I mean, I've been doing a lot more research on this issue and I have a lot more to talk about tonight um, that I haven't talked about in any other podcast or on the blog. Um, basically what happened is that all the tools that were needed to just create a completely fake reality were either invented or introduced, you know, brought to market. And I mean, for instance, the internet, January 1st, 1983, right? Mm. It went from being a bunch of dial-up BBSs and then ARPANET that only people in the government use to being what we have here. So, that's just, I mean, that's January 1st. I mean, that sort of set the standard for the rest of the year. But I, you just wouldn't believe, you wouldn't believe what was unleashed in 1983. Everything that people like, you know, people your age take for granted and, you know, were kind of novelties to me were introduced that year at least at the foundations of it. Give you a great example. The first film that mixed live action and computer animation was in 1983. The cell phone. <laughs> the Macintosh computer. Uh, Microsoft Word. The PCR test. Monoclonal antibodies. Mm -hmm. The first computer virus. Um just up and down the line. It's everything that became the foundation of this new reality that we entered into was introduced that year. And it's interesting to me too, because it seems that there's a, something with like 40 years, there's some significance with the 40 years, right? And that's 40 years ago now, okay? 
So just like I said, I mean, people your age take all this stuff for granted. But I remember, I remember a time in my life before all this stuff existed. And I remember a time in my life before it became as dominant as it is. And it's really 1983 is the linchpin. And the interesting thing, too, is that so much of 1983 seems to call back to 1947, which I've written about a lot as well. You know, for instance, the transistor. And it's plus six, plus six years later. You know, so from 47 to 83, that's uh, 36 years, which is plus six, plus six, six, plus six, six. Right. (laughs) And of course, if you add up the, the numbers between 1 and 36, that also gets you 666. So I've written, I don't know how many people who, you know, listen to your show are familiar with my blog, but I did a big series back in, gosh, 2016, maybe 2015, uh, called Lucifer's Technologies. Right. And it was all about, you know, it, it sort of started with this whole idea that technology was reverse engineered from a crash saucer in, at Roswell. And everybody's heard those stories. I mean, you know, there's been movies and the whole, you know, the X-Files was all about that. I mean, this whole mythology grew up around that. But what happened is that I went back and I looked at the specifics, you know, like the nitty gritty details. And it, it to me, it became obvious that it was all ritual that there was some major ritual being undertaken that I believe has to do with contact with ultra-terrestrial forces. An interesting thing today, too, is that this is... Um, so I've talked about this. I've talked about Lucifer's technologies, but I've also talked about um, you know, how the space program is just one giant ritual clusterfuck. And somebody posted a video and, and, and tagged me on Twitter today where it's Diane Pasolka. I don't know if you've had her on your show. No. But she was talking about going to these rocket launches where they would invoke, Rome, like, specifically Roman gods with specifically Roman Latin. Hmm. Okay. Now, <laughs> this all ties, I mean, it all ties in. It all ties in this grand scheme of things. But 1987 is really the year that the foundations of everything that we know today and everything that we're experiencing today and everything that we're dealing with today and struggling with today became manifest, was made manifest. So, like I said, I mean, I've done a a few posts on the internet. I mean, I'm sorry, on the secret sign about this, but... I mean, I didn't even scratch the surface. I'm, I'm sure. I, I feel like there's a lot more surface to be scratched if I went in and started reading some of the actual literature. But good God, I mean, I've got a list. You know, we can go through the list. You know, but like I said, it starts with the ARPANET. But right. Well, and uh, yeah, these four horsemen of this new technology, Lucifer's technology, the cell phone, the personal computer. And then the various systems that those Macintosh. devices fit into, right? And all the software yeah. that went in them, right? So it's infrastructure, software, and then the physical devices, and of course the culture that you know comes with it. And you make the point that Steve Wozniak and these early tech guys 
they were right in there in the music scene trying to go to music festivals setting up tents and putting computers in people's hands and showing them what the future would be like and it really mm. i mean it's really that ironic was, was the us festival there were two of them and one is in 82 and one is in 83 mm. they were held in glen helen park mm. outside of san bernardino and it really was just the way because he lost it was steve wozniak 33rd degree mason right. or you know and that's not speculation he actually is a 33rd degree mason <laughs> but and he he'll let you know it if you ask him he's very proud of it i will include he, the photo in the show notes <laughs> yeah so he threw these two giant like woodstock sized festivals you know and he was using like all the latest in sound equipment and he would also have these tents set up where people could see all the stuff that apple and all these other silicon valley companies were developing a much more innocent time (laughs) well and it's interesting how they use music because everybody's first introduction to like something that they can carry with them was the mp3 player right i mean cell phones were a little bit later than that right right behind it really but well you mean smartphones not cell phones yeah smartphones were right behind it but before people had you know when they had just like these clunky looking cell phones i mean that when you compare that to the ipod it's a league of difference and it's kind mm. of subtle the oh, way yeah. you know these companies starbucks has a sort of thing with music as well and so yeah it's interesting that they get into this music industry it's telling Music is an extremely powerful force. Right. You know? And I, I, the music that came out that year is just, I mean, just in, I did a, a post just on the music that came out this month in 1983, and it was just astonishing. It's just so much. Mm. But what really sort of, I, I think the thing that got me started on is just, the whole thing with Stranger Things, because that was like such a major um, epiphany to me. You know, it, I, it still boggles my mind just how incredibly well rendered and detailed that was. And, and just, I mean, it's like a time machine for me to watch that. I, it's so real. But there's all that strangeness, but that, you know, that's, that started as they wanted to do something based on the whole Montauk project thing, you know, with Preston Nichols and Peter Moon and Stuart Swordlow and all these people. And they just sort of went in their own direction with it. And there was a guy um, who had actually done a short film. I think he put it on like Vimeo or one of these not YouTube things or whatever. And he got really upset because I, apparently they sort of stole a lot of his ideas for that as well. But we also have two movies that I think everybody needs to see. One is Beyond the Black Rainbow. And the same guy did Mandy. And both of them are set in 1983. And both of them are just... <laughs> I mean, I was 16 in 1983, right? I, and it's just astonishing... I, it's just like a time machine, you know, You know, particularly Stranger Things. I mean, even though I was a little bit older, I was like more the age of Jonathan than Will. But, you know, I just really related to so many of those characters. And just the whole thing was just amazing. So anyhow, so that sort of let one thing led to another. And I just started looking like, what is it about this year? And then I'm like, oh, my God. 
everything changed. Reality was broken. So really what Stranger Things is about in many ways is like the, the veil of reality being pierced and the, the world being sort of reformed, right? Right. And that's very Lovecraftian, right? That sort of comes from uh, the Colorado space. And he also did, oh, well, there's also the the film Annihilation that kind of picks up on a lot of those ideas. But something just changed. Something changed. Well, it's interesting. In, way, in ways that are very subtle, right? And so, But, you know, it's kind of like, you don't notice your hair growing until like one day it's like, oh my God, it's down on my ass or something, right? <laughs> well, one one thing that struck me just now is you mentioned how the sixes add up to 36, 36 years from when, you know, the, the ARPANET is created to when the personal computer rolls out. Well, six years before 1983, the king of rock and roll died. And I just had Miguel Connor on the show last night talking about his book in the works, American Magician, going into Elvis's esoteric mm. side. And mm. he certainly see this is a part of Miguel's theories that Miguel Elvis was sort of like a bridge between America of the 1940s and that time, that generation to mm. America of the 1970s. And yeah, maybe he, he played a role, as Miguel says, as this Hermes trickster transforming America. And yeah, clearly, you know, what we're going to be examining today is a, is a very different world than what Elvis left in just 1977. Oh God, yeah, and but don't forget, it was either the day before or the day after Elvis died was the Wow Signal, where they, yeah, I don't know if you've heard about this, but it was to some observatory. I, I have heard of it, and I almost said Wow, but I stopped myself for yeah, fear of yeah, being crazy. Yeah. <laughs> out, out in Ohio, they picked up a signal that seemed like it was artificial. Right. Yeah. I remember and that. the guy who looked at the you know the paperwork on it wrote Wow. Next, next to the, you know, it just looked like to me, it just looked like a bunch of random coordinates or whatever. But it was seen as being like a genuine artificial signal, right? So, I mean, I've done so much on Elvis because of all the, yeah, you know, I mean, just Memphis and Jeff Buckley and all right. that kind of stuff. I mean, that plays into to my work quite a bit, right? But it's also like I always like to say, like Elvis is Elvish. You know, it's the elf world. And we'll, we'll, we can get into the USS Eldritch or Eldridge, right. Eldridge, right? Elvish. Yes. <laughs> oh, it's the name game, right? Yeah. You know, it's, but like I said, you can't, it's very hard to quantify when you're living through gradual change. But when I go back and I looked at this list, I, I was just, I didn't know what to think. I was just like, how could this all be in one year? Because all these things, you know, when you get down to the, the core concepts behind these, you know, these massive innovations and so on, they really went straight for the foundations of reality as we know it. And now, I mean, people are talking, you know, I mean, I don't hear a lot of people talking about Mandela effect so much anymore. But we can get into CERN because CERN plays into this. CERN had a big breakthrough in 1983. You know, a lot of people have talked about that just how the messing with these particle accelerators is, is changing reality, which reminds me, you know, so we just had the Oppenheimer film this summer, right? Now, there was a, a huge debate among physicists at the time 
because some of them thought that if we split the atom, it would just basically ignite the entire atmosphere. Okay. So I know there are a lot of people who are very skeptical about, you know, atom bombs and so on. And I, you know, I will say that a lot of those films that, you know, I grew up with of atomic explosions and nuclear explosions are clearly fakes. I mean, you can just see the masking and so on now. It's pretty crude, you know, but we didn't know that back then. But, you know, like 1983 changed that as well. You know, it's like, it's, this is going to sound like just, just a brief little off-road excursion here. But like, so say the, the, the moon landings, right? The Apollo moon landings, quote unquote. Now, those, it, whatever happened as far as people landing on the moon, I don't know. But all that footage and photo photography is clearly faked. And it's not even very good fakes. It's like, I don't, I, I always get really offended when people say, uh, Stanley Kubrick did that because I think he would never do that bad a job. What are you kidding me? So, <laughs> but all that stuff was not created for like people who have the internet and have Adobe Photoshop and, and photo analysis software and can freeze frame video in their homes. Well, it's you know, like as millions the, of people as the veil lifts and the curtain lifts off the stage has to rise to follow it, to keep people from seeing behind the, you know, the real what's going on. <laughs> yeah. 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 So, but you know, the Apollo hoax stuff was pretty much from day one. People were saying it was faked, but it wasn't until people had, high technology at their disposable in their homes that they could really start to look at just how bad the fakery is. But, you know, and I mean, if it still fools most, you know, a lot of people are still fooled by it and it fooled people for, you know, certainly at the time, but, you know, nobody knew any better because nobody had experience with special effects and everything. I mean, we're so used to special effects. We're so used to CGI and all this kind of thing. I mean, not that was all. That stuff was all practical. It wasn't done CGI because they didn't really have that capacity back then. I mean, you didn't really have CGI per se until the late seventies. And like I said, nineteen eighty three was the first time that CGI and live action were incorporated. Which movie was that in for the first time? It. I always forget the name of the film. It was it, it was a film that was actually cobbled together. It was actually a bunch of footage that was shot for a TV show that was never picked up for a TV pilot. It was like one of these anthology kind of shows that they used to have back in the day. Mm. And they cut it together, you know, these different segments. It's kind of like the Twilight Zone film. I don't know if you've ever seen that. Yeah, I have. But this was actually very common in the 60s and 70s where they would have these films that were just basically episode, like completely disconnected episodes. Right. And I forget the name of the film, but it's really not important. I think, I think Christian Slater's in it. Huh. So. Well, I only ask because after reading what's available on your blog on this topic, I was compelled to watch Liquid Sky, which I'd never seen before. Definitely after watching it, 
Not something I would watch again. I enjoyed it though. <laughs> and my wife, that, my wife and I, that was our cult movie. We we could recite along. That was like our Rocky, our own personal Rocky Horror show. Well, I got really invested in it to the point of going on the Wikipedia and actually editing in revisions because they had like the incomplete plot on the Wikipedia. So I've completed it. I think my revisions are still there. But it was a really strange movie, and I connected with it because. And they said this in the trailer, which made me watch it, that it was a girl from Connecticut. So I'm from Connecticut. I grew up with people like this main character, so I can relate in some way. And my younger sister, God forbid, is in the fashion industry in New York City. So uh, who knows what's going on there? But yeah, it definitely surprised me and made me think. But I, w I want to get into Liquid Sky, but I'll say Videodrome was my favorite out of the two. And I haven't gotten around to watching Brainstorm, but that's next on, on the and list. And there's also Wavelength, right, too. Right. Wavelength, which is a very strange picture. Uh, it's interesting because both Wavelength and Liquid Sky were shot in 81. Mm. So just like my experience being like very tuned into pop culture from an early age and so on, like 79, 81, and 83 seemed very similar in, in many ways to me. And there's both, or all three of those years, there was a kind of like weird, strange energy lurking at the margins of them. You know, it was, it's hard to describe, but it, it just seems, it seems to me that there was some force or energy or presence making itself known in stages you know, during those three years. But, you know, I mean, like I said, when we start going through this list, you know, you'll see exactly what I'm talking about. <laughs> so, yeah, let's... The other thing I should mention, too, is that... So, what I had mentioned in the, the year that broke reality is the whole New Age movement became popularized through... You know, it, it had been around since the early 70s, right? But it, it was just sort of a California thing, basically, mostly a California thing. And it wasn't until Shirley MacLaine wrote her book, Out on a Limb, that that, you know, that really became very mainstream. And the thing I, I tell people is that, like, the New Age movement isn't a movement anymore. It, it's just the mainstream. You know, it's not something that's pushing to, to get insert itself into the mainstream. It is the mainstream. Mm. And if you don't believe, you know, it's like people don't really see that because they didn't know what it was like before that. But, you know, I say when there's, you know, when insurance companies will cover acupuncture and chiropractic and all these other things that they would never go near back when I was young, either fortune tellers and so on in every town, yoga. I mean, it's like all the greatest hits of the new age movement just became part of mainstream culture right you know i mean whole foods for instance i mean it's just all these things that were incredibly marginal certainly back in 83 they were just almost unknown but there that's the mainstream now and we just we don't even recognize and this is what i'm saying is that when change is so slow and incremental you can't sense it happening you know, I mean, even me having lived through all these changes, you know, being as old as I am and having seen all these things unfold over time, I, I I have to sort of stop myself and think like, oh, you know, wait a minute. 
And the one thing that I will say, though, too, is that you know, the, the, the society, in 1983, you still had a society. You know, you still had a sense of who you were and where you lived. And you lived in a country and people in Massachusetts weren't all that different than people in Illinois or in North Carolina. I mean, there was still like a collective culture before everything became so atomized and balkanized. Right. And and that is something that I think obviously technology has accelerated. Right. And I, and I regret that, you know, I mean, I really do. I mean, I miss, you know, knowing who I was and where I was and, you know, no, it's just, it's very hard to explain. If you watch a lot of old eighties movies, I think you'll see it. You know, it's just, everything has just been torn apart. Yeah, it definitely felt like what might have been novel then was a little bit like is overdone today. Like the themes in Liquid Sky are, are things that I've seen in plenty of places, but I'm sure they mm. were a little bit jarring then, you know, to people who hadn't known that world firsthand. But I was surprised at the really deep sort of philosophy behind the dynamic of the plot where this alien is invisible observing these sexual uh, encounters that aren't always consensual and it uh, it basically kills the person who has an orgasm and it's just it was so strange because i had been looking down the wilhelm reich rabbit hole and his whole connection to orgasm and uh, and UFOs, by the way. Exactly. And then, you know, this translucent crystal is produced from their head before they die, and then they start disappearing, and there's, like, these borderline psychotic characters and this German scientist. I mean, it was quite a, a trip, you know, the movie. I think that German scientist was based on Jacques Vallée. That, well, that was my first impression, and I went to look and see who the actor was, but I wasn't able to find much about him. But, yeah. He's a German actor. So the, the the girl from Connecticut is a, an actress named Anne Carlisle, who didn't do, she didn't do much, you know she did a couple things, she did a Larry Cohen picture called Perfect Stranger, mm. and she was briefly in she had like a, almost like a bit part in Crocodile Dundee. You know her career really didn't go anywhere. You know she did she was a model though she sort of came from that, but the the she wrote it with this. I think it's Slava Zuckerman, right? Who was Russian, right? And he kind of he had written this play. I, I think he, I think he wrote it as a play first, but the screenplay at least, because he was in Russian. He was imagining what like um, you know the whole punk rock scene was like. That was it was just like all from his imagination. Huh. And the thing is that like the Russians, I mean, they don't you know we don't hear about this a lot, but they're really into UFO stuff, you know, and they, and they always have been. Um, what struck me about that when I discovered it was a Russian uh, person was the other thing that confounded me about Liquid Sky was the connection between heroin and UFOs that they drew, mm. right? And that was something the German scientist was looking into. Well, Viktor Grabinikov, when he was doing his research, he noted that when he was on his alleged flying device, he noticed that his health was affected and certain things that were happening to him resembled hallucinogenic states and Chaz of the dead who was on the show recently he's been researching all this and 
part of his theory is that the military was using psychic psychedelics to train people to be able to pilot these recovered UFO flying saucers because the effects endured piloting one of these craft are akin to being, you know, under intense hallucinogenic. So I thought that was kind of interesting that they were drawing a connection between UFOs and drugs. I hadn't seen that anywhere else. Oh, we can, we can get into that. Cool. We can get into that. Cool. Uh, <laughs> yeah, see, that sort of comes from, there was this whole, like, post-John Keel, post-Passport to Magonia, fringe of the fringe ufology move, sub-movement, really, that was based around this newsletter called Saucer Smear that was published by this guy named Jim Mosley. And all these stranger ideas started seeping in that I, I think really informed that. But again, I, I think that if you look at the timeline, Messengers of Deception came out, Jacques Vallée's Messengers of Deception came out in 79, which is another crazy year. You can do it some other time. But I like I said, I just think that character, you know, even though it is a German character, but it, it reminds, like, the, it just reminds me a lot of Jacques Vallée. And it's just sort of like, very much his presence is very much felt in that film. So <laughs> it's a crazy film, but it's all part and parcel of just the mood of just the things that were going on. I mean, it really just fits in. And again, it was shot in 81. So it's not intentional. Like they weren't like vibing on the whole 83 kind of energy. Right. But they certainly, dropped right into it. And in the same way that film Waveland, the guy who wrote that was wrote and director was a guy named Mike Gray, mm. who wrote the screenplay for The China Syndrome, which is a big movie in 79. So is that mix of weirdness is just very potent. And a, another film that was shot in the summer of 1983 is a film, I don't know if you've seen it, called Repo Man, with Emilio Estevez and Harry Dean Stanton. Have you seen that film? A while ago, a long yeah, time ago. That's, yeah, that, you know, when people go, what was 1980, what, like, what did 1983 <laughs> feel like? I go, watch Repo, man. You know, because like I said, it was shot in the, the summer of 83. It came out in early 84, but but that's like, that. you could have like, almost like a subgenre, and you could put Wavelength and Liquid Sky and Repo Man all together, because they all, you know, they mix this whole counterculture and just weirdness and there's a heavy MK Ultra subtext in wavelength. I mean, they even got a guy who looked who looks uncannily like Sidney Gottlieb, but also this, they got a guy who looks like you and Cameron in it. So it's just a freaky thing. I mean, that movie, when I first saw that movie, I'm like, what the hell is this shit? Yeah. But <laughs> I watched the trailer I and I did try to watch some of it. It's available on YouTube for people who want to watch it for free. And it's... It's got all like the campy cheesiness of like that, you know, maybe like the 70s B movies, but it's very interesting, the plot. At least what I saw from the trailer, the idea that they're cloning, you know, humans and aliens and doing stuff with this alien race of children and yeah, weird stuff. Yeah, it always, I always got a sense that it was telling tales out of school about like, child perdition in, in Hollywood and stuff, you know, because there's that sort of character. It was like the old Hollywood character and he comes up from the underground and it's just a 
really strange movie. Well, I just spoke with a woman named Karen Wilkinson. She's put a book out about her abduction experiences and her participation unwillingly in the human-alien hybrid cloning, allegedly, of course. And during her experiences, she recalls going deep underground. So on that note, it was kind of synchronous seeing Wavelength's trailer and being reminded of my recent conversation with her. Well, that also reminds me of Phil Schneider. Have mm-hmm. you ever heard any of the Phil Schneider material? Where oh. you're talking about the dumbs, the d- deep underground okay. military. Okay, that- yeah, no, I've learned a bit about that topic probably through schneider unknowingly yeah but listen i want to get into this timeline let's do it this is this is the meat of it i mean and like i said this is just so surreal to me so january 1st the arpanet officially changes to use the internet protocol okay creating the internet so (laughs) 1983 starts with the introduction of the internet uh the end of that month there's a big story in the new york times of all places where they were talking about Planet X, a.k.a. Planet 10 or Nibiru or or whatever you want to call it. And this was back when this was mainstream news. I actually remember reading about that back in 83, and not in the Times, but in my local paper. So Planet X, you know, it becomes a thing in the mainstream And, you know, the UFO thing uh, on St. Patrick's Day, March 17th, that's the beginning in earnest of the Hudson Valley UFO wave, which became uh, part of the culture through Whitley Strieber's communion book. Okay. Now, here's the interesting thing that I didn't even realize. This is freaky because I didn't even realize this. But the, the craft that this woman had reported on St. Patrick's Day was the same craft that I, fo- you know, my wife photographed above my house back in February 2017. And here's the thing that flipped me out because, you know, they, you can see depictions of this all over the place on the internet. Just do Hudson Valley UFO. And then I'll send you the, the, the pictures that she took for, for um, comparison's sake. But they were talking about how these lights on this V-shaped craft were going through the colors of the rainbow. And we've got a photograph of that happening. Like, seriously, you know, and it's like, it's not very good because it, it's impossible to take pictures of things that are translucent in yeah, the sky at night. <laughs> I hear you. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Unless you have like a telephoto lens and special whatever. But I mean, she got a pretty good picture of it. And it, you can just see it's the same thing that the lights are going through this like prismatic effect. And I was like, okay, so maybe this is some sort of military hardware. I don't know. It didn't look it when I saw it because it was just sort of hovering and making these very weird sort of lateral moves, like like almost it was like on some kind of track or something. But, but that's March 17th of 83. So that became a huge story. The Hudson Valley UFO wave became a huge thing, okay? In April, Carrie Mullis, you know that name? Yes. You know the name Carrie Mullis? discovers a polymerase chain reaction, the PCR test, which we've heard so much about these past three years, haven't we? (laughs) PCR test, DNA test, okay. Uh, I love what the Africans have done with the PCR test. Testing positive on an orange, a goat, all these things got COVID. (laughs) Yeah, gosh, yeah. Well, yeah, that's a whole other discussion. But (laughs) anyhow, 
And Carrie Mollis also claimed to be an alien abductee. Right. Wasn't he? A big LSD guy, surfer, hated Fauci, didn't he? Right? Hated that guy. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, that's, so DNA, I mean, it's, these are like, all, this is all big stuff here. Check this out. In April, the first 3D printing patents are filed. Team uh, Alain, Olivier DeWitt, Jean-Claude André in France, and Chuck Hull in the United States. So the beginning of 3D print. So not only do we have the beginning of the internet, but we have the beginning of 3D printing. Okay? May 20th, first reports of HIV as a possible cause of AIDS. And by the way, Kerry Mollis did not believe in HIV. He believed that was just complete nonsense. Mm. But by independent virology teams led by Luc Montagnier and Robert Gallo. So the whole HIV thing. I mean, AIDS had been around for a few years by then. And it started to be recognized as a, as a unique and specific body of symptoms in 81, I think. Mm. I think it had been around since the late 70s. But anyhow, you know, so pr- first reports of HIV. And that, of course, led to AZT. Thanks to Fauci, which just killed tens of thousands of people. Um, but that's a whole other discussion. First report of using a monoclonal antibody as a medical test. Okay, so so PCR, HIV, monoclonal antibodies. You with me? And this is all. Listen, I'm crazy. Nobody listens to me. I'm just some weird dude. This just all sounds like the building blocks of biological warfare to me, mm. or the, the new age of biological warfare. But, you know, who am I? I'm just some crazy dude. Uh, <laughs> June 1st, uh, the discovery of W and Z bosons at CERN in the what was called the superproton synchrotron. Synchrotron. Super proton synchrotron. That's a tongue twister, isn't it? So this is the first time that they were able to find unambiguous signals of bosons. So bosons were theorized before this, before January 1983. But it wasn't until the super proton synchrotron became available that they were able to discover they're called vector vector bosons. Okay. I don't know. Yeah, I, what I know about particle physics could fit a thimble, but uh, there you go. I mean, this ties into the whole changing reality because this is the whole thing with CERN. I mean, people are still talking about that, right? Right. And I blogged a lot about that whole thing with CERN. Back to the whole space thing, Pioneer 10 passes the orbit of Neptune, becoming the first man-made object to travel beyond the major planets of the solar system. You know, whatever. I'm such. I've become such a space skeptic that I, when I hear stuff like that, I'm just like, whatever. July 25th, world's first dedicated hospital war for HIV/AIDS patients opens at San Francisco General Hospital. July 25th. Oh, a little bit out of the timeline here, but July, uh, June 30, the intruders abductions in Indianapolis. You know about Bud Hopkins and his book Intruders. No. So back in the 80s. 87 to be specific. So this is four years later. The two books that really launched the whole alien abduction thing that really became a a big deal for many years 
were intruders and communion. Okay, communion was the best seller. Communion was the more well known, but the intruders book was also a huge book. And Bud Hopkins like worked with John Mack from Harvard and so on. So those abductions took place in outside of Indianapolis. Okay. In the in Italy, Emanuela Orlandi, a girl in the Vatican, mysteriously disappeared, and it became Italy's most famous unsolved mystery. That was wow. That was a week before what you just described. Crazy, dude. <laughs> so back to the whole CERN thing. And July third, mm. the Tevatron circular <laughs> circular particle accelerator. I'm sorry, I'm just a little punchy right now. I'm having trouble pronunciating <laughs> these things. So the Tevatron was built at Fermi National Accelerator Laboratory, also known as Fermilab, east of Batavia, Illinois, the second highest energy particle collider ever built after the Large Hadron Collider of CERN outside of Geneva, Switzerland. Wow. So, yeah. Maybe I mean, it's... For- it's it was closed then. down in, t- in 2011. Mm-hmm. Okay, so it was active for 28 years. Okay, but this is the second largest or the second highest energy particle collider ever built. So this was a big deal. Mm-hmm. This is a huge thing. And, you know, when, I, when people start talking about like what changed reality, what rent the fabric of reality, you know, I always say, you know, don't look at Alistair Crowley or something, look at, you know, the Manhattan Project and Operation Crossroads and CERN, you know, all these things that are basically rending apart the building blocks of reality. If something's going to change the structure of reality, you know, just dicking around with the building blocks of it, you know, bosons, for instance, I mean, that's going to do it, isn't it? (laughs) Oh, good Lord. This is another big one. I, I had no idea about this until recently. The introduction of musical instrument digital interface, aka MIDI. I don't even know how much MIDI is used anymore because everything's computerized, but this was a huge deal. This basically changed the way music was made from then on, okay, because you could hook up your drum machine to your sequencer, to your sampler and have them all running on the same circuit, mm. basically. So you could synchronize. You know, it used to be that you would have to lay down your drum machine track, and then you'd have to lay down your synth track, you know. And you'd be very tricky to sort of coordinate all these things. But MIDI changed all that and just made it basically automatic. You know, all you have to do is just plug it in, and everything syncs up. So this was huge, believe me. This was a big deal, and this is where you get techno and acid house and industrial, I mean, on and on. And this basically changed the entire way music was being made, particularly on a professional level. And uh, this put a lot of people out of work, by the way. A lot of student musicians were sort of screwed by that. So this was a big thing. And this sort of ties into just, again, this is all about the denaturalizing of art and just human experience. Everything is becoming virtual, isn't it, right? Yeah. Everything is becoming virtual. September 1st, the downing of Korea Airlines 
Flight 007 mm. by a Russian fighter that mistook it for a spy plane. On this flight, Congressman Larry McDonald, member of the John Birch Society, big anti-New World Order guy, big anti-Rockefeller guy, big anti-Soviet guy. This I remember when this happened. This was tense. Everybody thought oh, this is this is like how World War Three is going to start. Feels a lot is, like uh, what people are saying nowadays. Yeah, oh yeah, oh yeah. So, I mean, the, the Cold War was very tense. I, oh, I forgot to mention in March of '83, it was when Ronald Reagan gave the infamous "Evil Empire" speech. Mm. So that sort of set the tone for uh, superpower relations throughout the year. Uh, okay, so that was a big deal. That was a huge tiff. I mean, very tense. September 26th, the Soyuz T-10-1 mission ends in a, a paddleboard at the Baikonur Cosmodrome, and the, the whole the whole part of the you know the launch pad and everything was all destroyed in this fire, and. Because of the, the setting and the mood of the times, a lot of people thought that it had been sabotaged, by the way. But that same day was the Soviet nuclear false alarm scare. Right. Where the computers, the Soviet computers, sensed that a bunch of I, ICBMs were sort of approaching Russia, you know, in an attack. Yeah. And there was a, an engineer called Stanislav Petrov realized that it was a false alarm i mean if he did, if that one man didn't realize that this was a computer error it could have launched nuclear war wow yeah and i've seen a, a youtube video where a guy goes and trespasses at the baikonur cosmodrome and it's incredible to see what it looks like now because as far as what this guy shows it looks like they just left it all there when it failed and it's like just locked up there in the middle of nowhere in kazakhstan and this guy went and trespassed in there brought some hot russian chick with him and they looked at this huge a massive like i mean just submarine looking spaceship in in this hangar just rotting away rusting into dust but yeah, that's fascinating. On a lighter note, reading Rainbow began in 1983. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> September 27th, the next day after these two huge events in the Cold War, Richard Stallman announces the GNU project, which was about shareware and so on, mm. open source. And this is this was a pretty big deal because this was development of relatively sophisticated software without copyright. You know what I mean? Non-proprietary software. So, I mean, all the things that we saw in the wake of this, like like Java and so on, really kind of emerged from that. So, again, I mean, these are all huge things. I mean, that, that might not sound like a big thing to people, but this really is the start of hacker culture as we came to understand it. Okay. Um, hacker culture been around, but this whole idea of shareware and open source software really fired that whole culture uh, in ways that it hadn't been before. Uh, October 25th, word processor software, multi-tool word, soon to become Microsoft Word, 
is released. And this, when Word was created, that lit a fire like you wouldn't believe under the PC revolution, Mm. you know, because that was the kind of the first, you know, in, in today's context, it would be like just completely arcane to everyone, but it was relatively um, user-friendly. That's when you started hearing terms like user-friendly, okay? Right. November 7th, Able Archer War Games lead to another false alarm, another near launching of the nuclear arsenals because of this. Basically, what it was is that NATO was holding war games, and again, another computer error interpreted it as an attack. So we were the closest we've ever been to thermonuclear war. Okay. November 10th, um, Fred Cohen at the University of Southern California demonstrates a self-replicating source code, which becomes the first computer virus. Okay. Also the first worm. So all... I mean, again, it's just talking about major tectonic plates shifting beneath everyone's feet and people just not even noticing, because this is also a building block of um, machine learning, okay? November 29th, 1983, Robert Saubacher, who worked with Vannevar Bush back in the day, writes a letter confirming the recovery of flying saucers, but he says he knows of no specifics, confirms that Vannevar Bush was definitely involved and also mathematician John von Neumann, Robert Oppenheimer as well. So this real, and this lit a fire like you would not believe under the whole UFO conspiracy world. It's almost like, gosh, I mean, UFOs were always around and conspiracy was always around, but they really became combined, you know, with things like this. And this is, you know, at the end of the 80s, we start to see like Bob Lazar and Dreamland, Area 51, I mean, all that stuff. This letter, this letter about the fact that Vannevar Bush, or the claimed fact that Vannevar Bush, who was basically more important than Einstein in the development of tech, especially weaponized technology claim to have, you know, known about this and so on. So whether or not you believe that this is objectively true, it became a huge impetus for the UFO conspiracy, which really starts kicking in just a few years earlier with the whole Roswell thing which is like 78, I think. Okay. Mm. Uh, all right. One thing I'm wondering if you're going to get around to mentioning is the day after the, the TV movie. Oh, well, that's a whole different thing. Yeah. Right. So they were, so in, in the context of this whole nuclear scare, November 1983, there's also the day after miniseries, which depicts, you know, the effects of nuclear war in, middle america i think in lawrence kansas i think where it yeah, took that. place and that had like kind of an all-star cast yeah so that was a huge deal i think that was the most watched mini series on television ever 
right? So that was a huge deal. And again, this is all playing into the whole Cold War thing. But the thing I wrote about on the blog is that I always felt like people, you know, nuclear war was kind of a big thing that people were talking about. And then after that film aired, it, it just looked like it was like almost like a spell was broken. You know, all of a sudden it just wasn't as big a deal anymore. I, I don't, I'm not exactly sure of how that all worked, but it, it seems to me that sort of just popped that balloon. And I, I can't explain why, you know, I, I can't really explain why. But it's almost like it expressed the collective fear in a way that allowed people to process it. And, and well, also, see, but also in, you know, so we're talking about all this computer stuff and internet stuff. In the spring of 83, there was a film called War Games with Matthew Broderick and Ali Sheedy that was about a hack or a proto-hacker, really, a phone freak, proto-hacking culture. And... I think he like dials into some BBS and he ends up or he hacks into some database and did this machine intelligence wants to play um, thermonuclear destruction with him. I, I saw that at the movies. That's how old I am. <laughs> uh, that was a great movie, by the way, but there were a lot. So all this stuff was in the air, this weird mixture of, like apocalypticism and high technology, but also sort of like fringe metaphysics. You know, Liquid Sky is a great example of that, really. But again, like I said before, it wasn't the only example of it. There was a lot of it. And also the day after wasn't even the only example of like this whole nuclear Armageddon. There was a film called Testament, also released that same month, we start an actress that I don't know if anybody even remembers an actress named Jane Alexander, but I think Lucas Haas was in it too. I don't know if people know that name. I remember watching that on VHS and it just bummed the shit out of me. I was like so bummed up. It's not a feel good picture at all. I'm just, give me just a second, just scrolling down here. Yeah. Yeah. We, we can also get into the whole Montauk thing, which according to the lore, sort of culminates in 1983, in August of 1983. But, so we talked about CERN, we talked about this other super collider in, in Illinois, and, you know, we talked about how all these people have theorized it just by messing with the basic building blocks of creation, so to speak, that these blundering scientists are kind of just changing reality. But this is like what I'm saying. It's like 83, all the basic tools, I mean, they, they, they evolve and they develop into other things, but all these basic tools that I would really point at as breaking people's, at least their perception of reality, the internet, cell phones, you know, the user-friendly, the, the whole idea of, like, Microsoft OS, where you didn't need, like, a, a degree in computer science just to, to run a, a computer system. Um, and, you know, we're talking about the whole thing with user-friendly and so on. And then MIDI and then 3D printing. I mean, all these things are basically kicking away 
and just literally kicking away at the foundations of how we see reality. You know, what is real? What is not real? I remember, So I remember reading a book. It was a Michael Crichton book. And he was just talking about like how, oh gosh, I think it, was, it might have been Rising Sun, but talking about digital photo editing was just going to change everything because you could just create things or you could edit things pixel by pixel. And, you know, you couldn't detect them with the usual um, techniques. But now we have AI, you know, we have all these programs that just basically instantaneously scour the internet and create incredibly detailed images. I mean, artists are all, I, I, I used to be an artist, so I, I, I got out of it just in time. <laughs> I got out of the racket just in time. You know, we were talking about um, the superhero stuff and uh, boy, you know, like my whole thesis about this being the end of it was really confirmed with a Miss Marvel flopper room. <laughs> right. But, you know, all that was really fired by CGI as well. You, you didn't have a lot of good superhero stuff when I was real young because the technology didn't really exist to pull it off. You know, I mean, I remember if you go back and watch this, the early Superman films, it's like, you'll believe a man can fly. Not now. Not now you won't. <laughs> You'll believe a guy's on strings in a badly matted background, you know. Uh, it's just, it looks so bad. But that's how people perceived reality. Well, and on a whole other note, which is kind of synchronistic for me, I was listening to a podcast where they were going through a list of films made in 1983, and the comic on the show was making the argument, oh, they don't make films like they used to. Just look at 1983. Look at all the great films that came out in just this one year, you know? And they were going through the list, and I know Scarface came out in 83, right? I mean, that November. was... That was a big yeah, yeah. I just did a big post of you know the movies of of this month in 1983, and Scarface is definitely one of them. That that movie was so controversial back then. I mean, people were just like losing it over that movie because of the level of violence in it. Mm. That movie was. I I don't remember if it was banned. I'm sure there were certain theaters and stuff that it was banned from, but that movie was just shocking to people. Right. Another film I noticed mentioned on your list was the Osterman Effect, which I love. Osterman Weekend. Yeah, the Osterman Weekend, which I like that movie. I was a fan of Sam Peckinpah. came up in some music I was listening to. They referenced him, and I'm like, who is this guy? I went down that, you know, art hole and found a bunch of interesting movies by Sam, but... Yeah, that movie really struck me as like seeing into this world of Alexa and, you know, ring doorbells and playing into the whole reality show Big Brother thing before that really became a concept, you know. I'll have to go back. I saw that movie when it, not when it came out, but I, I saw it on HBO or something not too long after it came out. And I just remember like, like, I just like, I felt like I was being hurt, like, mm. I think the term I used in the in the posting is like, you know, I just spent an hour and a half in a pricker bush. <laughs> you know, it's just like, it was just very, like, violent and, you know, just kind of stabby. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's just, it was just, it's interesting, too, because 
people like assume that you know violence has just gotten worse and worse and it's like no it hasn't you know movies used to be a lot more violent than they are now right violence is something that they really you know like movies are certainly more you know, maybe more sexual than they are and certainly the culture is more sexual and you know i mean pornography is everywhere now but movies used to be a lot more violent for sure you know i mean particularly in the 70s and early 80s things just were i mean you do have like your torture porn kind of movies and so on but those are kind of outliers i'm just talking about like the mainstream yeah type of movies and you know hollywood i mean gosh they don't they don't even really make that many r movies anymore they're like you know because everything has to be a theme park ride yeah yeah well and that's why videodrome was a kind of disturbing watch for me i had my hand on the mouse just waiting to hit the 10 second skip forward at certain points because i'm not a fan and you know no shame on anybody's kinks or whatever but i'm not a fan of bdsm so that was a hard film to watch but, but it was interesting because again i noticed just through my taste in podcasts and listening to different comedians like there is a certain segment of society that really gets off to watching violent really dark videos on the internet and videodrome kind of predicted that or set the stage for that in many ways i mean you follow this character max rem and i wasn't sure whether to root for him or root against him as He's several kind of points. A scumbag yeah he doesn't seem like the great guy great character you're expecting and then nikki brand i mean with that whole what brand is the insinuation and the meaning of brand nowadays but nikki brand in her red dress she appears in the film like you know the lady in red and it was a very, the Debbie Harry character? Which, yeah, I don't remember the actress's name, but that's the main protagonist alongside Max, the woman he keeps seeing and hallucinating about after he meets yeah, her. Yeah, that's Debbie Harry Blondie. Yeah, yeah. Singer Blondie. Yeah. yeah, okay, yeah, okay. Yeah, I, re- I haven't seen that movie since the 80s. Like, I think, I, I remember seeing it on cable in like 84, and then seeing it on VHS like 88. 87, 88. But that's how long it's been. It's been a long time for me in that movie. Well, and to refresh your memory, it's, you know, at first year, I'm thinking it's, you know, going to talk about that theme that I just mentioned. Then it spins out into this Manchurian candidate where now he's in this mm. full blown hallucination. His hand morphs into a pistol and mm. he's, you know, killing his, his corporate partners. And yeah, it was really, you know, it. I'm glad I read Secret Societies and Psychological Warfare by Michael Hoffman before I watched Videodrome because he references that film a couple times in his book and it really all clicked when I saw the film. And yeah, I think Michael Hoffman takes that to an umph degree in his book. You know, that's his perspective. But yeah, Videodrome is quite a shocking i mean really if people want to go back and watch it i i do recommend it but it's shocking for sure well that's the thing i say about 83 is that 83 was such a weird year that david cronenberg made two movies in it mm-hmm. you know because he also did the dead zone right and that's the movie I, I have watched more recently well and let's get into christopher walking because there's a whole natalie wood conspiracy there and yeah and that well, that's 81 that's 81 when she died well, but that's another interesting thing. That's another 81 movie that came out in 83. So that's like three that we're talking about, which is really strange to me. Well, it seems like that 
was kind of swept under the rug, Christopher Walken only became more famous after that moment, right? So they might have held the movies back to maybe wait that out or... I mean, who knows? I mean, I don't mean to go totally extreme, but it seems like there's some sort of re- ritual going on there. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I actually read some of Natalie Wood's sister, Lana, wrote a book about the her whole experience of that. And she pretty much pins the blame on Robert Wagner. Hmm. And she all but says that he, you know, that they were arguing and he just tossed her into the drink. So, and Christopher Walken might have been asleep through it all. I don't know. I haven't really, you know, read up on it more recently, but I do remember that story very well. I mean, that was another huge deal. But then I saw a brainstorm at the theater as well. And I remember, like, I didn't, I thought it was just kind of weak, to be honest with you. It didn't really, I mean, it's a movie that I can appreciate more because I'm more aware of all that kind of, MK Ultra, you know, and it's sort of tributaries that I am, that I was back then. But, uh, yeah, I don't know, with Christopher Walken, man, I mean, he became like a meme, didn't he? Yeah. Like a, a living meme. So, but, you know, back then he was a serious actor. I mean, he was somebody who people really thought very highly of. People thought he was going to be like, Gosh, I mean, who would I compare him to? You know, he's one of these guys who people were sort of putting him in like sort of the art house, you know, just like the very prestige kind of projects. And then he just sort of went in a completely different direction. And of course, he did that god-awful communion movie. Have you seen that? No. So there's an 83 connection there because, you know, so that whole situation with Whitley Strieber, it's like the Hudson Valley. I mean, that those events happened in 1985. But like I said, the whole thing really kicks off in 83 with the St. Patrick's Day sightings. So, Well, let's blend in the Montauk effect and the Montauk project and the Philadelphia experiment. Mm. And how did the Council of Nine fit into all this? Because it... Well, yeah. (laughs) Do you want me to answer that? Yeah, please. It seems like there's a thicker web here that we could explore. Okay, so we talked about 79. There's this weird... If you play music, right, there's this whole thing with like, what is it? I, I, it's been so long now. It's like relative. I think it's relative fourths. But anyhow, that's never mind that. Uh, there's some weird connection between seventy nine and eighty three that I I don't really understand. Right? I don't really get like why there seems to be this weird overlap between those two years. But in seventy nine, the co-founder of Esalen was this guy named Dick Price, right? And he. I think he was like bipolar or something. You know, it was pretty well known that, I mean, it was open that he had, you know, major mental health issues. He had gone up to Oregon to hang out with the Osho people. Have you seen that thing, Rajneesh Koram on, on Netflix? So he went and hung out with those people. And, and he, he came back and he's wearing like, you know, the orange robes and stuff. But I think he kind of soured on them. Because it was getting like kind of violent up there. That whole that whole scene got really kind of dark. And he comes back to Esalen, and there's this like there's this like young British girl 
you know, this young, buxom, a little spitfire, you know what I mean? She's like this little hellcat. And she says that she's channeling the, the Nine, the Council of Nine. And this was well known a few years earlier through Andrew Paharich and his book that he wrote on Uri Geller. So this stuff had kind of been, you know, and there's also a book written in 76 called Gods of Aquarius by that guy's name, Brad, you know, Steiger, Brad Steiger. Thank you. So Brad Steiger wrote a book called Gods of Aquarius and he went into the whole council of nine thing, but it also in 77, the next year, they kind of announced that there were going to be these mass landings of UFOs and, don't ever predict that. Even if you think it's going to happen, don't predict it. Just let it be a surprise, right? <laughs> so then there was a book called Briefing for the Landing on Planet Earth. And like Gene Roddenberry figures very prominently in that because they had hired him because they wanted him to write a, a, a movie based on whatever, the whole Council of Nine channeling mass UFO landings that never happened, so on and so forth. So, I mean, this was a, kind of a well, uh, well-known well quantity in certain circles. So, this chick shows up at Esalen, and, like, Dick Price just, like, goes head over heels for this thing. I, I think that there was, you know, and I've said this over and over again, because men are men, and... <laughs> I think she got her hooks into him with something other than her channeling skills, let's just say. You know what I mean? And, you know, Esalen was just basically like the gorgy scene there anyway. But he really, he went hog for it in 79. And it became like a huge controversy. But they were basically... You know, he basically made, you know, the, he put the Council of Nine on the board of directors of Esalen, for, you know, certainly in 1983. I, there was some talk that, you know, this all sort of blew over in 83. I don't think it did. I think it kind of blew over when he died in 85 under extremely mysterious and strange and suspicious circumstances. You know, I, I think that's when... Because that's when the, the rocket fellows were moving in because they, they had big plans for wrestling. Okay. Yeah, you know, I've talked about this in a number of different venues and so on. But that was that's what was going on there. And you know, you'd mentioned brainstorm. Now, Douglas Trumbull, when he was making that picture, took like his team down to Esalen, you know, to consult on this. So, you know, like I say, the stuff is all mixed in. Now, here's the thing. On the face of it, like ufology is ridiculous, right? It's just, it's a clown show, right? But beneath the surface, you have all these strange connections and these strange emanations, like things happening. Big, you know, major things like we're talking, like, for instance, Carrie Mollis and the PCR test, and then later claiming to have been abducted by aliens. You know, I'd like to say that was just some fluke thing that, that he was like some weird outlier but he's not you know what i mean there's a very strange particularly during that time period a very strange and sort of constant through line of high weirdness and high technology and it's that 
corridor between San Francisco, Palo Alto, and Big Sur, you know, that was very active in like the late 70s and early 80s. And, you know, this is when people like Jacques Vallée, who's, you know, when he's not writing UFO books, is working on the ARPANET. And he's basically creating what we, I mean, you know, Jacques Vallée basically helped create what we're doing right now, video conferencing. And that's when, that was like his specialty, internet video conferencing, back in, you know, at least 40 years ago, 40 plus years ago, okay? So this is what I'm saying. <laughs> and it's like all this stuff that we think is weird and kind of fringe and everything somehow weaves in and out of all this major technological shifts that have completely changed reality. Right. Well, you know what I mean? So, like, a lot of people say, oh, this whole thing with CERN and, and everything, it's just a bunch of nonsense. And I think, well, maybe it isn't. You know what I mean? I mean, it's funny, because when I was getting ready to do this, I, I was reading, like, article after article, just debunking the whole, like, CERN, Mandela effect, whatever, and thinking, like, I, I think they're protesting too much. <laughs> and it's just like, like I said, if you were going to actually start to do major damage to reality as we know it, maybe you'd go after the very building blocks of it. Mm. I mean, I, again, I can't prove that. You know, I mean, this is all just speculation on my part. But I can't discount it. You know, certainly now, like, especially after doing like the Lucifer's technology series. And just seeing how all this ritualism and occultism and ufology and all this stuff just like is almost embedded into computer technology and, and these major developments, these high tech developments. I can't, you know, I don't, is it all disinfo? Is it all just misdirection? I don't know. But there's just too much of it, you know, there's just there's too much. Too many weird things just popping up over and over again. And like I said, I mean, just look at the list we went, you know, the internet, 3D printing, MIDI. I don't know if MIDI is a big deal anymore, but MIDI was a huge deal for a long time. You know, I guess until Pro Tools shows up, right? Mm -hmm. But I, I think Pro Tools is also MIDI. All these major things that just change the way what we think of as being real. So when I say reality is broken, that isn't hyperbole. I, I really mean that reality is broken. And what do I mean by that? It's like our perception of what is real, what is true, and what is tangible is completely different today than it was 40 years ago. Yeah. You know? And like I said, I was very tuned. I was very tuned in to a lot of this kind of stuff at a very early age. So, like, I can speak to this with some sense of authority. Yeah. Well, and I wonder if the same way we can use hardware and software in this combination, if there's some sort of hardware that can alter the software that we're all inherently, you know, running through our collective consciousness, right? And then this gets into the whole concept of cybernetics which is very old right i was surprisingly old how, how yeah, long ago yeah, they, they figured yeah. this stuff out and it seems like they have tried to program reality in this way 
And it, I, it's not surprising that the computer reflects that process, right? I mean, it's inherent to the computer. You have hardware and software, you program it, it's right there in the verbiage. Yeah, it is. And now they're talking about things like Neuralink. Right. You know, now here's the thing. I mean, I'm generally a skeptic of these kind of things. Only reason being is that I heard exactly the same pitch for Neuralink that you're hearing today 30 years ago, mm. literally 30 years ago. As a matter of fact, it was written into an episode of the X Files back in 94, 95. You see, I mean, so, like it goes back a long way. This is not new. And so I, I don't know if they've been able to pierce the, the brain blood barrier, but like I said, I'm just, I'm not given to just dismiss things out of hand anymore. And it's like, I do have a need for evidence. You know, I don't just take claims at face value. I want to, you know, it's like, show me this. I'm, I'm, you got my attention, show it to me, you know, just tell me about it. But I'm also, you know, I'm not the kind of person who's just going to believe things just because I'm just so jaded by now. You know, I've just seen so many things come and go. And, you know, this is something I've read, written about in the Endless American Midnight at length. You know, there's a whole section on it of, about how we we are at the end of the gee whiz miracle age. Maybe there are, are things waiting in the wings that we don't know about, but... I would venture to guess that maybe those things aren't exactly technology as we understand them, but some kind of hybrid between technology and something else. Does that make sense? You know, like maybe it isn't nuts and bolts technology somehow. I mean, maybe technology is involved. And this is where, you know, this kind of reminds me of, you know, getting back to what we are talking about with Videodrome, because that's kind of what that film deals with but so like i said i i just understanding having the the sort of the vantage point that i have and seeing a lot of things sort of come and go but, but now being able to see what has you know what conceptually when you know get back get past the brand names and the cracks and the gizmos. I mean, just get back down to the, the basic concepts of the machinery and the technology and all these things that have basically destroyed what I once knew as reality. Like I said, 1983. I mean, it's just, there's no getting around it, you know? Yeah. Well, and you're kind of reminding me of the plot of Beyond the Black Rainbow with what you suggested just before, where there's this fusing of spirituality and science. Mm. And yeah, the New Age movement. I love that fucking movie so much. I can't even tell you. That's one of my favorite movies of all time. Yeah. Which just goes to show you like how sick in the head I am. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and it reminds me Mm -hmm. of something I I remember you saying last week when we spoke, which is that the new age is just theosophy 2.0. And I think you wrote Mm -hmm. that in the article here. So maybe I'm confusing things, but yeah, I mean, explore that with me because it's something that I think people take for granted. We look at, 
technology is this secular thing that's, you know, universities and governments and atheists. And then we look at America as, oh, Christians, it's just this good old apple pie Christian nation. And it's like so much more riddled with these occult and esoteric strains than most people expect. And I certainly didn't know it until a couple of years ago when I started looking into all this stuff. Well, it's interesting because it's not exactly theosophy, it's neo-theosophy. Okay. Okay, so theosophy really starts to flower in the late 19th century, okay? But in the early part of the 20th century, it really starts to split apart. You know, after Madame Blavatsky's death, and Annie Passant sort of takes control of it, but she has like more political kind of agenda. And then Alice Bailey comes along, and she's like, well, we're going to go back to Blavatsky. Now, I I was out at the Theosophical Center in Wheaton, Illinois, over the summer for the Astronosis Conference. And it was very interesting because I kind of noticed that, like, you didn't see a lot of Alice Bailey around, right? And I, I was talking to the one of the librarians, and she's just like, Oh, well, you know, she kind of just went off on her own, did, did her own thing. And <laughs> so it's just like, I mean, if you really start to dig, like people who are like, I guess this sounds like such a strange thing to say, but Orthodox theosophists like think that she's just a total heretic, which is just so bizarre to think, you know, given what we know about theosophy. But, so the point I'm trying to make here is that we had all these emanations starting with Bailey in the 1920s that lead ultimately to the Space Brothers kind of thing. That the whole Space Brothers and contactees and even like the early abductee stuff really grows out of neo-theosophy. Now, neo-theosophy is, is probably a better progenitor of the new age as we understand. I mean, you know, theosophy itself, I mean, sure. Yeah, I don't have any problem, but there is like an intermediary step there, and that is neo-theosophy. Now, neo-theosophy kind of reaches almost like its apex with Heaven's Gate. Okay. Now, so I call, and I have called Heaven's Gate kind of a Gnostic almost like a classical Gnostic sect that, you know, if you strip away all the science fiction, pop culture stuff, their basic beliefs are very Gnostic, right? But the midwife there is near theosophy because that's where Bonnie Nettles came from. That was her world. But if you start to go back, I mean, it's like this stuff that weaves in and out of certainly the defense industry and the war machine because a lot of people who are driving this were high you know flag officers in the British and American military you know, particularly in the Navy right the Navy there was a group called NICAP which was like National Investigation Committee for Aerial Phenomena right I think they're still around in some sense but back in the 50s the entire board of this group, this UFO cult, for lack of a better term, were all 
flag officers from the Navy and Marines, you know, particularly the Navy. And who is driving this whole thing today with this Grush character and all this kind of fake disclosure stuff? The Navy. The Navy is, is behind that too, right? I mean, David Fravor, right? Navy pilot, you know? And, and that's sort of a, basically, the Air Force is kind of a joke nowadays. I mean, people don't want to admit it, but all, all the major combat missions, air, air missions, are mostly flown by the, the Navy. Like, they have their own Air Force, basically, because they have the aircraft carriers and such. Anyhow, so there is this weird, like, neo-theosophy in particular, more than theosophy, because, like I said, theosophy was just basically kind of, it was kind of done, it was kind of finished with, by, certainly by the 1920s. And then Alice Bailey comes and picks up the slack. Alice Bailey, who I have no doubt was a British intelligence agent. But, like I said, I did this whole presentation for my uh, my Patreon on the Space Brothers, and it it's all the theosophy, the, Theosophical concepts or groups, particularly, like I said, neo-theosophical groups, are just everywhere. But also military and also technology. And it's like so many people who are like engineers and computer programmers and stuff can get into some really weird shit, man. I mean, you think that they're all like hard-bitten materialists? <laughs> No, they're not. No, they're not. Particularly, you know, once you start getting into high-level programming, you know, these people have a very skewed opinion of reality. Well, and it and, seems like the people who have advanced technology the furthest overwhelmingly have these strange encounters, even sometimes where beings explicitly give them information that plays into their work. What is it? Robert Beverly Hale? Tesla said he was getting his ideas from Mars, transmissions right. from Mars. Right, right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but but like I said before, this whole 1983 kind of network where it's like SLN, certain aspects of Hollywood, but definitely the early Silicon Valley, more specifically Palo Alto, which is really where... It, you know, that was what a lot of this stuff is really being driven from, is Palo Alto. Because that's where Xerox Park was. And Xerox Park, basically, I mean, they created the mouse, for Christ's sake. I mean, so many of the major appliances for home computing were developed at Xerox Park. Um, arguably, um, both Windows and Macintosh are outgrowths of, of Xerox Park. I mean, you can go watch these old videos where it's like, you know, e-commerce in the 60s and so on. So all these ideas were being developed a long time ago. I mean, back to the 40s, really. You know, when they start talking about an internet, you know, they just didn't have the equipment that you needed to make it viable. But, you know, I mentioned Vannevar Bush before. I mean, he basically, he, you know, not Al Gore, I mean, he created the internet. I mean, back in the 40s, you know, he just laid down this whole idea of networking computers together and exchanging all this information over telephone lines. 
Okay? That's in the 40s. You know what I mean? And what did I mention before in 1983 in November, this whole letter from Robert Saubacher, who worked for Vannevar Bush, said, oh, yeah, this guy, yeah, Vannevar Bush was all about the UFOs and rescuing technology. Again, I can't confirm any of that. All I can tell you is that it just keeps popping up. Um, did you want to get into the, some of the Montauk stuff? Yeah, yeah, let's do it. All right, let's take a brief moment to hear a word from these motherfucking sponsors. I don't know who these sponsors are. I prefer my own sponsors, like The Hit Kit, the number one way to get lit. If you don't know, go to The Hit Kit on Instagram or hitkit.us where you can get the double barrel hit kit, the Swiss hit hit kit. You could get uh, all kinds of crazy hit kits. He's got all varieties of hit kits. So no matter what you're smoking on, a spliff, a blunt, a joint, a cigarette, a cigar, whatever it is, throw it in the hit kit. Keep it safe and sound. All right, now let's get to these uh, shitty corporate sponsors. Hopefully you don't hear a McDonald's ad or... What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low-net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Or something shitty like that. Okay. Have you done shows on Montauk before? I've talked about it with you, I imagine, but no, other than you, just Mike Wan and I have talked about it, and that's on my other podcast that Mike Wan and I do, uh, Your Handbook for the Apocalypse, Mike Wan of uh, Susquehanna Alchemy YouTube channel. But yeah, we've gotten into it, but I'm excited to hear your take on it. All right, so this ties into 1983, at least in-universe, let's just say. So, in 1992, Preston Nichols puts up this book. I think it's called The Montauk Project Experiments in Time. There's a, there was a few of them. And actually, I read, I read them all. And I'll tell you something. I couldn't make heads or tails of them. I actually got them out of the library, believe it or not. They were trying to read them in, like, I don't know what this is about. I don't know what these people are talking about. So basically what it was is that Montauk, which is on the tip of Long Island, had a forward operating base called Camp Hero, where they had radar installations. Okay. And this was, you know, the war effort and so on. I think that the equipment was all basically dismantled in 81, I think, in 81. Uh, so this is... Uh, an insulation, military insulation. Now, what they were working on, though, this is interesting to me, too, because they're working on um, SAGE radar, the SAGE radar program, which was very highly classified. And actually, my grandfather worked on the SAGE program when he was at MITRE. My grandfather worked for a company called MITRE, which was a spinoff of uh, MIT, Lincoln Laboratories. Now, just, just to back, just backtrack a bit. The whole idea of alien abductions maybe being something else besides, you know, little green men from Zeta Reticuli, like Betty and Barney Hill, 
this starts to gain a little more traction around, you know, in the early 80s. And there were, there were some people that kind of looked at, you know, when I mentioned before the, the Indianapolis events that became documented in intruders, people kind of looked at that as that maybe it was interdimensional entities. And like I said, this is all growing out of this sub underground where people like Heal and um, Jim Mosley are kind of putting these ideas forward. But this mix of quasi technology, maybe pseudoscientific technology, and the paranormal, you know, is, is something that we're starting to see a lot of. And, you know, we discussed some of the films that these ideas come through. Now, again, this, these books didn't come out until the early 90s, but they claim to have documented events that happened in, the, in 1983, specifically. So there's this whole, I'm just going to call it lore, about, I think it was called Project Rainbow, which was basically cloaking technology or allegedly cloaking technology that the Navy was developing and that they were using it on this ship called the, I think it was a battleship called the U.S. Eldritch. So we have that sort of name game there. And that had vanished in 1943 and um, somehow went through a wormhole, a space-time wormhole, and reemerges, so to speak. And actually, there's a film, uh, I think, uh, interestingly enough, it was made in 84, called The Philadelphia Experiment, that uh, kind of talks about this. Again, this is all kind of lore. There's a guy named Al Bielek who uh, popularized this, this stuff, and he didn't really offer too much um, evidence but it was very popular, and it, it kind of almost connected in a strange way with the Bermuda Triangle stuff that was popular at the time as well. So this guy, Preston Nichols, comes along and claims that there was this uh, huge project for highly advanced alien technology and other forms of technology being run out of uh, Camp Hero after had been um, abandoned by the military, that this was all being done in secret, and that they were um, like kidnapping young boys in particular to to be uh, placed into these programs. And Preston Nichols was very kind enough to offer his services, uh, doing what was it? What did he call it? I think it was like tantric massage to help relieve the trauma that these now young men. Have experience. Oh gosh, tantric <laughs> massage. Just, yeah, like the new uh, Argentine president. <laughs> yeah, basically giving these guys handies. Wow. <laughs> so anyhow, they claim now. These are some of the claims. I wrote down this list. Some of the claims that they said came out of the Montauk project as they documented it. Uh, the AIDS virus was created there. Uh, that there was a deep military, you know, dumb, like Phil uh, Schneider talked about a few years later, um, there. And there were these just levels going, you know, far beneath the earth. Uh, there's a 50-foot ziggurat there. 
that nobody can figure out what it's all about. Um, that they, you know, like I said, like so they kidnap kids, but also get, uh, homeless people and, you know, messed up their heads and stuff with radiation and all these kind of experiments. Now, this very much ties into what we see also in wavelengths, doesn't it? So it's interesting that the kind of things that we see in wavelengths are you know appearing in these books and given the timeline i think it's probably not coincidental or maybe preston nichols is a big fan of that movie that there are they were making flying saucers there this is a good one nikola tesla didn't really die in 1943 his death was faked and he moved out to montauk to work on these projects so this remember i was talking about this whole 40 year thing so they, you know this whole situation with the philadelphia experiment where the, the uss eldritch you know basically vanishes you know according to some stories like showed up in like a navy yard in philadelphia or something and that's hence the name i'm not too well versed in it because to be perfectly blunt i i don't really buy into any of it but listen i'll believe a lot of weird shit but i just didn't find i mean i did i have I wrote about it some years ago on the blog, but I just never found the, the evidence to be even comprehensible. Mm. Never mind. Well, and it's, never mind compelling. It's interesting because it seems like, whether directly or indirectly, there is an inherent connection with what's going on in these high-level military and scientific bases where they're working on you know big projects and these ufo encounters the world of paranormal sightings cryptids people often make this kind of you know speculation oh well cern opened a portal and that's why we see all these dogmen and whatnot and i wonder if it's something more ancient something more mythical mystical that they're just tapping into in a more precise way using technology you know in the past they would have had you know lynn mctaggart's power of eight you know eight dark sorcerers all conjuring something using just their mind power now they can you know in, have an infinitesimal amount of mind power through computers, right? So uh, allegedly, right? So there's maybe there. Well, well, I'll tell you something. You know, the next step in this lore, this story, um, kind of combines what you're talking about, kind of with like the CERN things, and that's the time tunnel. And so the Montauk talks about the time tunnel that was basically like the time tunnel in the old TV show from the 60s, mm. where you sort of enter into it. I don't know if you're familiar with that TV show, but you can just sort of get off certain points in the timeline, you know, it can go backwards and forwards in time. And this ties into the whole notion that you hear about in some ufological circles that aliens are not extraterrestrials, they're humans from the future. And that's a whole kind of explanation that Keel talked about in the Mothman Prophecies book. And so they come back in time, but they don't quite understand, you know, what year a certain car came out or, you know, what people were wearing at a certain time. You know, like it's, they just see it all as kind of contiguous. But they claimed that they met Jesus in the time tunnel and, and 
extraterrestrials and so on. Hmm. And that the Eldritch, so according to this elaboration on the original Philadelphia Experiment story that goes back, I think, to the 60s, that the, the Eldritch got sucked into hyperspace into through the time tunnel. Mm. Okay. So it's just basically, you know, whatever you needed to do, <laughs> whatever kind of supernatural or paranormal phenomenon you need to manifest, you can do through the time tunnel. But also, now this is the Demogorgon in Stranger Things. That comes directly from the Montauk mythos, that there was a terrifying alien creature that came through the time tunnel, smashed equipment, destroyed equipment, and killed a number of scientists there, which led to the time tunnel being shut down. Okay, So this is pretty much straight out what... The Stranger Things were doing with the the Demogorgon. But they also said that there were these two people, these two brothers that came from 1943 into 1983. One was named Duncan Cameron, which is kind of interesting because that's like you and Cameron, MKUltra kind of vibe there. Scientists from Operation Paperclip worked there. MKUltra experience were done there. The mysterious men in black were created there. Uh, the Jersey Devil was allegedly created there. I guess that was a time tunnel because, you know, those stories go back to the 1700s. Hmm. <laughs> Superhumans were created in, in this whole underground base. Super soldier serums and so on. This is where they made the black helicopters. This is where they filmed the moon landing hoax. I, it's just, they just folded every, you know, every kind of outlandish theory, conspiracy theory that you can think of. It. It's all at Montauk. It's like this is the one-size-fits-all conspiracy theory. You know, whatever happened, it came from Montauk. I mean, even the Jersey Devil, which people were writing about in the 1700s. Mm. Again, the kidnapped boys who, when they grow into adults or young adults, young men, had their trauma relieved through tantric massage. But also, so here's, but here's, so again, I think you can probably tell that I'm not super sold on this whole mythos or these whole stories. But the thing I find interesting is that on or about August 12th, the Time Tunnel Project at Camp Hero, Intellect and Hyperspace with the original Rainbow Project, which is the, the cloaking project that caused the USS Eldridge to disappear. And that, you know, basically a, like a hole was ripped in space-time because of these experiments with this time tunnel. Now, the interesting thing about that is that this is before all the CERN stuff became popularized, or even, I, I would even say even well-known. So having these tunnels, these super scientific tunnels, which CERN is, right? It's a series, it's a network of tunnels with all these tubes that they do these atom smashings and stuff in. Uh, But anyhow, the the whole idea is that a hole was ripped in space-time in 1983. Now, was that the Montauk Project or was that the real-life work being done at CERN and at Fermi? right? Fermi Labs in Batavia. If anything was ripping a hole 
in space-time, which is certainly, that's an idea I am very willing to entertain, by the way. I would argue that it was more likely done at, you know, these giant colliders, right? Right? You know, with these giant particle colliders, rather than this time tunnel where, like, Jesus and dinosaurs and aliens are sort of just popping into our timeline from. That I have a little trouble with. Well, you know. I'm coming around to this idea that it seems like Montauk was a decoy or a, another mythos put forth in the conspiracy narrative to add to this reality bending that was occurring and maybe throwing people off the mark if they were trying to, you know, point it to a source if they were noticing these strange goings on. Well, that's been pretty well attested to. I mean, mm. not that particularly, mm. but we know about like the Benowitz affair, right? We know all these disinformation programs being used that, you know, several of which have been exposed or admitted to, apologized for, whatever. We know that's how it works. You know, when you've got a lot of stuff that you don't want people paying attention to, you come up with a science fiction version of it and push that to the hilt. Now, I mean, this is, uh, and again, I don't, I, I hope I'm not in, in being inflammatory or insulting, but this is what I've always thought of when I, when the project Monarch stuff came up because again, I'm old. All right. And I remember when project Monarch came out, like I remember, like I was on the internet when that stuff started popping up, and a lot of people were like, get the fuck out of here. You, come on. One of whom was Jim Keith, right? We talked about Jim Keith, didn't we? Yeah. Yeah, so Jim Keith was one of these guys. I mean, there's, there's a whole chapter in Mind Control, World Control, where he just basically says this is just complete disinformation. I mean, we know that Mark Phillips worked for the CIA, or at least he claimed to have. I, I would not impugn Kathy O'Brien in this per se. I think that she was probably, uh, she seems like a very, you know, like a genuine person to me. I think she's just been messed around with. All right. I, I don't think that she's like making shit up. Okay. I think that, I think she was generally victimized by somebody. Mm. I just don't know if it was like Bob Hope and Dick Cheney, you know, some Air Force base somewhere. You know, I mean, a lot of the kind of, I, I'll just be blunt here. I mean, a lot of the kind of thing, I mean, I, I have read that book. I read Transformation America back, you know, late 90s. And I even back then, I was just kind of thinking, it all struck me as being kind of compensatory fantasy. You know, like something bad, like bad things really did happen to her. But maybe like a little bit more mundane than what she goes into in the book. I mean, listen, we know that intelligence agencies are involved in human trafficking, prostitution, culture involved in intelligence agencies, culture involved in prostitution, human trafficking, vice versa, you know, mix and match. You know, I mean, we know this stuff goes on. It's not denied by anyone, right? I, I just think that she was probably being messed around with just not by you know, all these celebrities and so on and so forth. 
that doesn't minimize her suffering, right? I mean, listen, a lot of sick bastards out there doing sick shit to people, you know, and they can really put you through literal hell. But I do, I do believe that was mostly disinformation hmm. meant to sort of steer people away from the things that really happened. Now, one of the things that I've come to believe is I, I think this whole thing with the butterflies, I mean, I think that was used in MK Ultra. Like, I don't think it was used in this sub project monarch, but I do think that that type of imagery was being used by some of these people because it was the whole idea of metamorphosis. You know, we're going to change you into something new, like a caterpillar changes into a butterfly. So, I mean, I think there is some validity there. I just, but, you know, this is like, I think all this, and like I said, I've been around so long that I've seen a lot of this stuff kind of come and go. And I, I would just have to, and I apologize if I offend anyone, but I would just have to sort of group the modern project in that category. Yeah. You know? Well, and I wonder if that's to, again, throw people off from the mass. Well, that's, that's exactly what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah. The, the mass transformation that's going on, as Videodrome suggests, through the signals in television and screens and obviously the internet and phones and social media has you know, ramp that up to a higher degree for sure. And I mean, to get into the whole school massacre situation, I mean, and the whole, you know, I mean, not just at schools, but, you know, all of these shootings. Yeah. These mass shootings that have been taking place, you know, that often comes up, uh, you know, there's some sort of psychotronic influence going on, uh, manipulation. And well, you wrote a program to kill, right? Well, yeah, no, Program to Kill, that's... McGowan. McGowan, yeah, thank you. Yeah, of course. Well, and I think there's some... There's certain similar ideas, and you know, you'd mentioned the secret societies and psychological warfare. Mm. I'm not... I mean, all these things. You know, you sort of have to take bits and pieces from... Because I, one of the things that I, I would sort of fault a lot of people in these fields, and, and I can kind of tell that they, they, they're doing it, even if they don't admit it, is that they have some good information, but they sort of fill in the gaps with not good information. So just take that for whatever it's worth. And that's just something that I've observed over the years, that, you know, there'll be like a... And it's not necessarily, like, intentional. It's not like somebody being malicious or trying to deceive people. It's just like, I, you know, I, I know this and I can prove this, but, you know, steps A, B, C, and D, I can't really get to. So I'm going to just kind of fudge it. You know, it's, it's almost like an occupational hazard with some of these guys. And it's something that you can't really get away with anymore. You know, you can get away with, you know, now when people can just like, well, let me look that up. <laughs> hey, wait a minute! You know, a lot of a lot of the kind of more outre and extravagant conspiracy stuff that was like more fun 
in, in some ways in the you know the grimy, gritty, horrible, harsh reality kind of conspiracy stuff. A lot of it has kind of fallen but to the wayside because, like I said, you don't need to go to the library and you know look through a bunch of books and you know you can just instantaneously find something out whatever <laughs> yeah well and it's interesting we're on this topic of CERN and reality changing because quantum leap come came out in 89 finished around 93 which kind of mirrors what you're saying about 79 to 83 but it does seem like the time tunnel and quantum leap are inherently related but yeah i mean geez with some of the paranormal stories i've been hearing lately it definitely feels like the possibility is very real that this portal is open and and things are are coming through it i mean i see i don't even know if i put it in those concrete terms because here's the thing i've come to see these models that we draw on to describe anything, you know, particularly paranormal or, I mean, even scientific, the models themselves are insufficient. They don't take into account a level of complexity that is just inherent in reality itself. What do I mean by that? What I mean by that is that there's so much information let's just call it, you call it sensation or whatever. Just go outside, just walk around, just put your antenna up, right? You're going to start to be processing a lot of information. A lot of it will be your associations, prior associations, particularly from when you were young, um, associations that you've developed over the years. Um, a lot of it is just basically part of the landscape. I mean, I mean, I personally believe that you know we we live in a very crowded <laughs> spiritual environment. You know, and when I, you know when I talk about these things, I get into trouble because people start to take this to a religious connotation. But to me, it's just like energies form. You know, forms of energies, fields of energies clusters of energies you know just put in that kind of context right but it's just like the energy that animates trees and grass and woodland creatures (laughs) wind and sky i mean you know i start to sound extremely animist i mean i have been called an animist maybe i am i don't know but it's just like these things are objectively radiate certain frequencies. They radiate certain energies. They take in certain energies. They put out certain energies. These things are all alive in one way or another. Okay. I mean, and I don't believe, well, I, this is a whole other discussion, but I, no, I've sat. Let's say I don't want to say no for a fact, but I've satisfied to you know my curiosity as to life after death. Unfortunately, that wasn't the happiest experience of my life, but I do believe quite wholeheartedly 
in after-death survival. Sometimes I wish I didn't. <laughs> but that's, again, that's a whole other discussion. You know, we're in, you know, we're very complex beings, you know, and, and at the core of it is this, this energy, you know, you know, when a car just finally gives up and doesn't work anymore, you know, it still has gas in the tank, right? It still has a battery under the hood, right? And it still has oil in the crankcase, you know, it's like the, the basic elements that create this thing that make this thing go are, are still there. And, and I just think the same way about us, you know, I, I don't want to get in like, well, is it a spirit? Is it a soul? Blah, 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 blah. I mean, you know, I, I don't know. And I just, I don't know if we can know. I, I think it's just, we have to learn to accept that there are things that are just beyond our capability of, of knowing. And I, I think that is not only like the beginning of wisdom in some ways, but it's, it's the beginning of true happiness where you don't feel that you need to just identify and catalog and control everything. Just kind of let things be what they are. So when I talk about that, I think there's a tear in reality that's metaphorical language that I'm using. I don't know what it is. I don't know how it works. I don't know what caused it. I don't know where it comes from. You know, I can tell you that I think it started here and or started there, you know, like these things contributed to it, but I don't know if they're causal factors. Okay. I just at in my advanced age, right, I just have come to just accept that there are things that we, we can't know or we're not allowed to know and just go with it you know and when you start to think that way you start to i think you start to experience things more fully and you start to process things more fully because in order to name and claim them as i say you have to break them down you have to make them small and isolated and dead really you know it's like you have to you know if you want to see what's inside that frog you have to cut it open right i i, I don't think that way anymore you know I, don't, I i think letting go of the need you know for new age super pseudoscience as it were you know letting go of that i think just it doesn't make everything you know more obscure or just more inexplicable. It's like, stop using the, that kind of reptilian mind that needs to control everything and catalog everything and start using a higher mind where it's like, I'm just going to experience this, you know? Because even if I could name and claim it and catalog it and identify it and all that stuff, you know, if it's, if it's truly meaningful... I can't control it. So why bother? You know, it's, this gets, you know, this is my whole, and I'm sure we've talked about this, like, you know, just being a kid in the ocean, you know, like the ocean, just, I, I just over and over again, I just return to that as, you know, as kind of an allegory. So I can tell you that something strange for sure happened in 1983. And then all this other weird stuff that is changing the way we perceive reality and the way we understand reality. I, I mean, I can tell you that for sure. 
But the layers above that, you know, what is driving this? Where does this come from? You know, I can tell you a theory or two, but then when you marry yourself to a theory, you divorce yourself from all the other possibilities. Do you see what I'm saying? And it's just like, that leads to unhappiness because it's like, oh, well, my theory is this. Oh, you, wait, you disagree with my theory? Fuck you, man. You know, let's start throwing some hands here. You know what I mean? It's just, you just, you get caught up in all this stuff. And, you know, I don't know. Maybe I'm just becoming more of a hippie in my old age. I don't know. But I just, I, I found that when we start to talk about things like what tore hole in reality, it's like, I can't show you that time tone. Right? I don't know jack shit about particle physics, so I can't explain the math to you. I can't explain, like, what CERN did. All I can do is kind of just, like, you know, cause and effect, just look at look at the timeline, you know? And I, I just find that's just a much better way of dealing with this stuff. You know, don't marry yourself to any particular explanation and play the field, right? You know, it's like you want your uh, kind of like metaphysical body count to be raised. You know? It's mm. like, don't wed yourself. And and this is what I'm saying, you know, with like this whole Montauk thing, where it's just like, oh, yeah, it's like everything the men in black and the flying saucers and the Jersey devil and Nikola Tesla and Jesus Christ and the dinosaurs and the Demogorgon. It's all like in this time tunnel, you know, under Camp Hero and Montauk. It's just like, how boring, how boring that is, you know, it's open up, man, you know, open up and just, let all the possibilities just fly around and just, I don't know. Well said, Chris, and I really appreciate <laughs> you saying that. And I hope that proves to be a, a guiding ethos on this show where we talk to so many different perspectives. And, you know, I try not to get involved with the comments, but I do notice people when they get very decisive about one guest or another, or they're very conclusive about one theory or another. And those types of comments tend to be the most extreme and, you know, the most unpleasant in some extent, but it's definitely a symptom of, I think, waking up and realizing what's going on. And, you know, everybody's in their own point in their journey. But I really like that as a guiding ethos and kind of, especially from my position as a podcast host, you know, to take every everything with a grain of salt and not be married to any one theory or idea. And I think you just made it a really great, you know, pitch for anyone to join the Secret Sun Institute, which I am a part of. Folks know that. They could catch me on the Patreon there. But nice. yeah, it's definitely something that I think people are coming around to. Now, as we start to close this conversation out, I don't want to ask you for any you know future predictions or anything, but do you think in 2063 people will think of 2023 as a year that broke reality? Do you think the past couple of years have the same sort of weirdness that the 79 to 83 span did? No, because I think it's just, you throw a rock into the middle of the lake, right? And that's the splash. 
And then, you know, you know what I'm saying? They're all the concentric circles that just sort of emanate from that. And I think that's where we are now. Like, the surface has already been broken, okay? And this is just the wave. You know, this is just these waves. And and that's where in the middle of. I, I, I don't see anything particularly decisive or like any particular turning points, because I think we're already on that path. We're, you know, put on this path a long time ago. And it's just taken us, or I mean, maybe not all of us. I mean, maybe everybody will completely disagree with me and that's fine. You know, if people disagree with me, that's fine. I mean, I'm just sharing my life experience with you and, you know, my knowledge. I mean, I've, you know, I've read a lot of this stuff, you know, and for you personally, you know, for doing what you're doing, it's it's good to be single and play in the field when it comes to this stuff, because that way you can be a negotiator and an interlocutor. You know, you can hear people and then but maybe you can also sort of bridge gaps with people. You know, it's like I hear you, I respect what you're saying. I respect your feelings towards it. I expect I respect your convictions for this. I don't share them particularly, but I understand them and I appreciate them. And that's a very powerful position, you know. I think that's a mystical position. One thing that I've always noticed about mystics for for decades now is that they can sort of move between the poles or maybe we can move between the various poles and all these various um, viewpoints and these various modes because we're operating on it like a different level. I don't want to say it's a higher level, you know, maybe it's just more of like a, a perpendicular, like I don't want to say it's high, you know, we're above and you know, blah, 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 blah. That's, fucking narcissistic nonsense. But we're, you know, maybe we're just on this parallel track and we can sort of, you know, see the, you know, from this vantage point, we can see the commonalities between all these different traditions. You know, like I said, you know, you'd, you'd see like Catholic mystics could connect with uh, Buddhist or Muslim or Jewish mystics, you know, because they're just operating on a different level. You know, you're operating more on the level of ideas and experience rather than on the level of dogma and creed. Do you, do you understand what I'm saying? So, I, I mean, yeah, I'm a big fan of the mystic mindset. And, you know, I recommend it to people because... Uh, it's a path of freedom, but it's also a path where you can connect with people, you know, without worrying about ID. Yeah. You can just, you can connect with people on certain levels. It's like, you know, I can talk to a Catholic or a Jew or Muslim or Buddhist or whatever. And like, you know, we can find sort of common grounds because I, I just have that different vantage point. Like I said, it's just different. It's not better or worse. It's just different. 
so what does this have to do with 1983, right? Well, what does it have to do with 1983 is that things are happening that we don't understand. And we might be able to even grasp them for a while. Like, we just don't have a complete set of data. People go, oh, 40 years is, you know, 40 because a lot of you aren't even 40 years old yet. 40 years is nothing, dude. It's nothing. 40 years is boom, baby. I mean, take it from me. It's nothing. It's a fucking eye blink of history. So we don't understand what's going on. We don't understand what we're dealing with. We don't understand what's coming to our reality. We don't know where it came from. We don't know what it wants. We need to stay open. We need to collate and collect more information because we are in in, uh, uncharted waters because of that little laundry list that I read, you know, a couple hours back where like just everything just, that changes our basic perception of, of how things work was shattered, broken. So, there you go. Yeah, I'm with you, and I think that's a big part of what I've learned over the years. I was just having a conversation with my buddy Juan about this on our Patreon show and how you know mysticism is something totally different than the occult in many ways, and it's a path you have to walk And there's tests that you must face and there's signs and symbols that will point you in the right direction if you're using your intuition properly. But mysticism, as you pointed out, it's something that connects all of the realms in that way because it is that initiatory, self-initiatory type of thing where you're inherently walking it alone and, and with every other person that's walking in that horizontal way, as you described. I, I really like that, but... Chris? Well, I mean, I probably said this to you before, mm. but, you know, getting back to the whole ocean metaphor, I, mm. you know, I, I probably said this before, but it's like mysticism is a surfboard rather than a seawall. Mm. So a seawall, that's maybe more of like an ex- exoteric religious, where you, you're sort of, you're building a structure that puts certain things in and certain things out. And listen, that's fine. I'm not going to, like, put that down. I I understand the place for that, right? But, you know, I'm trying to, you know, the surfing, it's like I'm just riding these waves because I understand that they're greater than me. And they're greater than, like, that seawall is going to come down eventually because they all do, right? And then the, the, the magic is like the guy on the beach with a fucking spoon trying to shovel back the tide, you know what I'm saying? And then just, like thinking he's just, you know, the king of the universe or something. It's all delusion, you know. And, and listen, I'm, I'm sure I just insulted half your, <laughs> your audience, right? But I just I just find, I mean, there are certain kinds of magic that I really respect, like earth, you know, ancestor magic, earth magic, you know, like things like that. But I think the whole idea of, like, just trying to contact entities and ask them to do shit for you is right. just, like, the worst approach to anything that you can imagine because i i I think any entity that's going to like sit there and like talk turkey with you and make bargains with you is going to screw you right in the end you know because what do you have to this is the one thing i say is like what do you have to offer them you know so so say you get a like 
deal with a devil, uh, not a devil, but like a demon, right? You're going to call up a demon, and you're going to ask him to do this something for you. It's like, what do you have? What do you have that he needs, right? What, what do you think this demon needs besides your fucking soul, you moron? You know, right. and they just eat it you know uh, you know not literally what you know whatever kind of process this is but it's like they're just gonna gobble you up whole because you know you're just a little snack to them you're just a, like a stupid little snack and uh, listen that's something that i i do feel very strongly about because it's just it always ends badly like i said i i do think there are forms of magic that are not sorcery and maybe that's really what I need to boil it down. It's not magic, it's sorcery. Hmm. Because sorcery to me is, you know, trying to contact and right. bargain with entities, which I just think is just never, ever do that. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. <laughs> never, ever do that. Well, and that, that <laughs> connects to a lot of what we talked about in our uh, conversation last week, which is available for folks who support on the patreon and this week and this week you know i mean like listen yeah you know when i talked about lucifer's technologies it's <laughs> you know the basic thesis is that i think a bunch of sorcerers contacted a bunch of entities to get this and it's it's not going to go According to any of the, any of our plans, you know, they say say now that AI could just basically. I don't think AI is going to destroy us. I think AI could very easily drive us all insane mm. and make us destroy ourselves. I believe that is very highly possible, if not likely. It seems so, like it's already in the midst. Yeah, I mean, yeah, there you go. Identity politics and all that, pharmaceutical drugs. I mean, it's making a lot of people. Insane for sure, but all this and more on the Secret Sun Institute. Chris, I appreciate this so much. You're always a favorite, a fan favorite, and a favorite of mine, and uh, I'm a big fan of your work. So it's always a pleasure having you here. Of course, the Spandex Files is available. I recommend folks go to the Secret Sun and just check it out from there. But anything else you want to plug, promote, anything that you'd like to tell the folks about other than have a happy Thanksgiving? Because I think I'll be putting this out this week. So, uh, yeah, this will be Thanksgiving, our Thanksgiving episode. <laughs> happy Thanksgiving. <laughs> you know, I hope you have a uh, family that you can spend it with. You know, I don't, want, I don't want people to be alone. That's one of my big obsessions, you know. It's better to be with a bunch of people who get on your nerves, but are still your kin, than to be alone. Yeah, you know, yeah. there's an old Irish, there's an old Irish saying, "Contention is better than loneliness," and I think that's very true. Yeah, I agree. Well, thanks, Chris. Wise words as always, and a lot of great stuff in this conversation, folks. You can follow up on all of these points of information at thesecretsunblogspot.com. The links are in the description. And until next time, immerse yourself in the moment wherever you are in the now. All right, ladies and gentlemen, that was our episode with Chris Knowles, the man behind 
secretsun.blogspot.com. Of course, I'm a big fan of Chris. I am a supporter of his Patreon. I've probably mentioned that a hundred times already, but I can't tell you how much I love his latest book, The Spandex Files. And if you want to read it, it's available now. Chris and I recorded a whole episode just about the spandex files. We talked about UFOs. We talked about the superhero phenomena, the death of the superhero, its impact on culture. We got into the X-Files. And that episode's going to be available for now for supporters only. So if you want to hear that, please do sign up today on Patreon or Substack. Of course, if you're already listening to this on Patreon or Substack, thank you so much. I appreciate you. No extended outro for this episode. It went uh, long and I didn't want to chop it up because I figured, you know, this audience, you guys, the people who now have to endure the ads, well, I give you a little Thanksgiving treat. So here you go. Enjoy this and stop being a barnacle. Sign up on the Patreon or the Substack today. You get an ad-free experience and you get full access to great episodes like this one and the one that Chris and I recorded last week. And in all honesty, uh, had nothing to do with Chris. It was all me. I was a little off that day and I asked him to uh, do a redo and he was kind enough to let me have him back on the show uh, a week later so look at that but no sweat for Chris he could talk about this stuff all day and I think this topic was much, much better suited for the show considering we did talk a lot about the Spandex Files before it came out uh, at the beginning of the year so you're probably familiar with that episode if you're a fan of Chris Knowles and this podcast. That was our last conversation, but Chris has been on the show now six times if you count this Patreon episode. So uh, I am super psyched to call him a friend. Uh, I actually met him in person last time uh, I went out on a little uh, trip down to Pennsylvania. Uh, me and Recluse and Mike Wan, we checked out the... Um, rose valley neighborhood which is a very strange strange area with a ton of weird history and then afterwards steven and i went and uh, met up with chris knowles and had lunch and all that good stuff and it was a great time it was great meeting chris in person uh, he and i are both very tall so it was uh, i felt very comfortable hanging out with him it was cool so anytime having him on the show is a good time and again i cannot uh promote his patreon enough so if i already have uh beat your eardrums with my own patreon promotion here's another patreon to sign up with and i get it you know it's the holidays uh coming up and people are saving money they want to you know give back to the people they love so if you love this podcast give back to me but if you really can't afford the bonus episodes you can't afford to support the show but you want to check out uh, what i've been putting together for the supporters including the articles and all the stuff i've been writing on substack uh, just send me an email and i will give you a three-month trial uh, free for my substack 
uh, so you can check it out and that'll keep you going through the holidays and that's on me so yeah that's uh open um invite for anybody to email me the email is in the show notes and i will hook you up with a three-month free trial for my Substack. so fuck you to everybody who says oh these guys you know oh they podcast and they charge people for the good information listen i quit my job to do this and if you guys didn't support me i probably wouldn't keep doing it but I think the reason why I have the support that I do is because I do what I do pretty well. And I'm going to continue to improve what I do like any artist does. Uh, continue uh, improving my craft. <laughs> as lame as that sounds. But I really love doing this podcast. I love all the feedback I get. And more often than not, it is the kindest people, the nicest people who tune into the show and leave messages. So if that's you, I hope you have a happy Thanksgiving. I hope you leave a five-star rating and review and let us know uh, that you like the show. I will read the ratings here on the show. And uh, yeah, I'm excited to kind of cozy into winter here. It just started snowing, believe it or not, uh, today outside my apartment window so i'm going to be cozying up with some books and i'm going to be bringing some excellent top tier guests to the podcast so stick around stay tuned and sign up on the patreon or the Substack today to get the full picture and until then uh, immerse yourself in the moment wherever you are in the now Broadcasting the moon matrix from the lunar surface They want you confused like you never knew your purpose Hopping through the portals, dismantling the machine My family thinks I'm crazy, I can't believe what I've seen Memories of a war, the Pleiadians and Anunnaki Stuck within the genes of a copy of a human body DNA fractal, the universe within me Epiphanies of science is hoarded by the Illuminati Puppet masters know the power of the mantra Repeating mad lies till it has an effect on ya Subliminal messages hijack your perception Tricking the population with holographic projections We see through it the system is unraveling I'm astral traveling through the library of the Vatican On a sacred journey I embark with the squad Forever spitting truth like Mark on the pod Gotta know the facts, never hold back Cause I ain't getting caught up in the soul trap I dissect the fabric of reality Looking for the answers Searching through the galaxy You might be feeling stressed out Depression, anxiety, is no measure of health to be well adjusted to a sick society You don't even know how powerful you are We the ones who gonna expose the whole facade I awoke in a deep underground military base Zero recollection of how I got to this place Alien corpses floating in glass cylinders Must have been extracted when they crashed into us Animal hybrids contained in the cages A lion with the eagle head Monkeys with reptilian bases Losing my mind and I'm feeling desperate I look around the room and I see no sign of an exit All of a sudden the wall flickers away Revealing a hangar full of spacecraft My getaway I run to the nearest one See a guard knock him out Robin Fulber's plasma gun Hop in the ship Take the controls They highly intuitive I figure it out easily Lift off Accelerate through a tunnel Until I see the light Fly into the sky Get flanked by 6 F-35s Gotta know the facts Never hold back 
getting caught up in the soul trap I dissect the fabric of reality Looking for the answers Searching through the galaxy You might be feeling stressed out Depression, anxiety is no measure of health to be well adjusted to a sick society You don't even know how powerful you are We the ones who gonna expose the whole facade